Let's seek the Lord for as we come before his word here. Thank you, Father, for this exhortation to put our hope in you. Find our hope not in ourselves, not in this waking world. The rebellion that we see every day that is centered against you and your Son. Lord, our hearts grieve. We realize as your followers this is not our home. But Lord, we live here. And we pray that you would help us as we endure the trials and the challenges of this life. Because of the sin that surrounds the nations that rage and the sin that rages within our own hearts. We thank you today that we gather in anticipation of baptism and the reminder of what it means to identify with Christ crucified and risen. We rejoice together today in that saving message and pray then that we would heed this exhortation and song to put our hope in God, that you are our rock and our fortress, our salvation and strength. And Lord, we long to rightly steward your church and to rightly practice baptism, and I pray that you'd help us to do that together today as a congregation as we consider your word and as we come uh, to, again, witness this ordinance. We bless you. We thank you for your blessing upon us and pray now by the work of the Spirit of God that you will accomplish far more than we could anticipate, far more than we understand as you work in the hearts of your people and draw to light those who know not Christ as Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Our verse-by-verse series through the book of Hebrews has revealed Jesus as our great high priest. We've seen this theme again and again. Hebrews demonstrates that Jesus' priesthood fulfills and it supersedes the Levitical priesthood. God set the Levitical priesthood in place to carry out the provisions of the covenant that he established with Israel on Mount Sinai. We find the record of that in the book of Exodus. But Jesus established a new covenant, a new way for his people to approach God and receive his saving grace. This new covenant is in every respect superior to that old covenant. And the risen Christ reigns from heaven's throne as guarantor of that new covenant, as the one who says, I will hold this in place and I will save my people by this plan forever. Hebrews 7.22. Hebrews chapter 8 then continues on with the superiority of this new covenant. But our focus on baptism today provides the opportunity to consider this initiatory symbol of the new covenant as we pause the series and do that here. Thinking is so fitting as we move into chapter 8 and the new covenant superiority that we find displayed there. But Jesus entered the rite of baptism himself. And he entrusted the rite of baptism to the church as a symbol of the new covenant work of redemption that Jesus achieves for his people. 
We have then a high calling as a church to rightly steward the ordinance of baptism that Christ entrusts to us. And I trust that we would come to it with that perspective today. You can kind of sit back and say, well, there's a baptism to come. That's nice. We'll watch this again. We've seen it before, perhaps. Let's not go at it in that direction. There is a stewardship that is placed upon each of us to rightly steward this ordinance of baptism. And in that interest, it's vital that we understand baptism is not merely a spiritual upgrading of the physical rite of circumcision under the Old Covenant. Coming out of the context of Hebrews, where we are, chapter 7 and chapter 8, Rather, baptism testifies to and it exalts in specific aspects inherent to God's superior new covenant plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. We must recognize that baptism then is not a spiritual upgrade to the physical circumcision of Jewish infants. But baptism is a new covenant symbol of regeneration into God's family by spirit baptism. New Testament baptism is not hardwired to one's physical family. We rejoice that physical family can gather and support and encourage and teach about baptism. But baptism is a matter for the individual. It is hardwired to the new covenant features of repentant faith in Christ as Savior and baptism by the Holy Spirit. This connection is supported throughout the New Testament, but it is revealed from the very outset of this new age in the ministry of John the Baptist. And so I invite you here to Mark chapter 1. This passage is not written merely to describe the linkage between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. There's more going on here. And if we went through the book of Mark as a study together, as a journey through that book together. Uh, we might look at this first chapter a bit differently, but I want to narrow in on the aspect of baptism that is here and to see the linkage between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. I think it is very significant to our understanding of baptism, but again, to our stewardship of it as a church. We notice in the first eight verses that John prepares the way for Jesus with a baptism of repentance. The purpose of John's ministry is given to us here in the first three verses of Mark. The beginning, notice there verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning certainly echoes Genesis 1.1. There's something new that is beginning here in this, in this gospel ministry of Christ. Notice that he is the Son of God as he's introduced. He does not become that, but he is the Son of God. And as it is written, verse 2 in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, John prepares the way for Messiah. It was very physically done for a king that would come. The roads would, um, there would be decay and uh, there, there would be erosion and things would happen to the roads that were there and so they needed to be repaired for the king is coming this way. 
preparing the way also included announcing by heralds, the king is coming, prepare yourself for his visit. That's what John the Baptist is doing in fulfillment of prophecy. He is preparing the way for Messiah. So his message, and indeed his his baptizing, prepared people for this new age of the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of John's ministry. We see then, secondly, the message of John's baptism, beginning at verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's the heart of John's message right there in verse 4. It is a baptism of repentance. The Greek word could also be translated conversion, repentance, conversion. Well, what is repentance? It's good for us to, to consider that, to review again that repentance involves a change of mind about who I am and about who God is. There's a literal change. We're not born with this understanding, but we change our understanding about who I am in my sin and who God is. Repentance involves then turning away from the path of my sin and my self-dependence and to throw myself upon the mercy of God for His salvation. A repentant person moves from sin is okay, it's just who I am, or I can improve myself sufficiently to please God, it changes from that to I am lost as a consequence of my sin. I need God. I need His redemption. I need a forgiveness that I cannot achieve on my own. I can't save myself. I need a Savior. That's the heart of repentance. Turning from who I am and where I am in my sin to embrace God in His grace and in His forgiveness. John's baptism was a ritual identification with this message of forgiveness from sin that comes through repentant response to God's grace. That's the message that it's displaying. Now this uh, interpretation, I think, is supported in verse 5 as we see the response to John's message. Notice, what, notice that response, verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, repenting, and receiving this message. So this verse is not saying that every individual in the region of Judea or in Jerusalem came out to John, of course, but all kinds of people from all over the place were coming. That's that's the idea of it. Now let me tell you, it was not easy to get down there. To get to the Jordan River was not an easy journey. Toward the end, down that Jordan Rift, you were walking through wilderness and there were lions in there, literally. They're not there anymore. But there were at this time. It was not an easy journey. And it was a good jaunt from Jerusalem that was going to take a lot of time. And we asked then, well, why did he set up there? It wasn't because it was easy to reach. It wasn't because there was no opportunity for baptism in Jerusalem. There were mikvahs all over the place, these kind of stone tanks into the ground where the water would run down in. The Jews were receiving ritual baptism all the time. 
there were many of these mikvahs that you can even see today have been excavated around the temple. It wasn't because there was no water for people to be baptized in Jerusalem by any means. It seems that John sets up camp here, his baptismal shop, so to speak, because he intended to cut out those who weren't serious. He intended to make it difficult to come out to him and to confess one's sins. There has to be a certain level of sense that I need forgiveness. I need to identify with this message and I'm willing to put forward the effort to identify in this way. Now, who was confessing their sins? We might ask secondly. Who was submitting to John's baptism of repentance? Well, in large measure, if not exclusively, it was Jewish people. Particularly Jewish men who had long ago received circumcision as participants in the Old Covenant. That's who's coming, and that's the people that John is baptizing. So John's baptism clearly communicated this message, your family identity is inadequate. Being a circumcised member of Israel in keeping with the law of Moses is not sufficient. In Matthew 3, John says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I don't think it's playing unfairly to say another way of saying that is don't depend on your circumcision. Don't say we have Abraham as our father. You need something else, something more. Circumcision was a sign that identified an infant boy with Abraham and his offspring, indicating where his offspring would be identified. But in contrast, John's baptism had nothing to do with family identity. It had everything to do with the individual's repentant faith. This means that John's baptism marked a key transition point in salvation history. Imagine it this way. Imagine that Jews arrive at Jordan and they ask John to be baptized. And it becomes very clear as he interviews them that they are not repentant. These are individuals who just want to be part of the scene. They just want to participate. But they are not repentant, even though they are upstanding Jewish citizens. Is John going to baptize them? There's no way. In fact, there are some who came out that way, we find in the other gospel writers, and he sends them off. He rebukes them. It's not just coming and wanting it. It had to be preceded by repentance. That's why it's called a baptism of repentance. Baptism in the Jordan was the way John's followers bore witness to the change of heart and God's gift of forgiveness based on humbling themselves individually before him and receiving that forgiveness. Verse 6 narrows in a little further to the preacher of this message. Verse 6 and he was, let's say it, he was eccentric. He, he was not your average guy. Verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair uh, and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. A camel's hair, that is from the skin of a, of a um, camel, it wasn't happy clothing, let me tell you. 
It was just not a nice thing to wear, but there was a sense of austerity here, a sense of being set apart by God, and the dress is almost identical to the description given for Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. So there's a sense here where John is identifying with that wilderness prophet, that one you had to go out to find, that one who was out on the edges of the mainstream and called for radical devotion to God. He's setting himself up that way, and he's eating wild locusts or wild honey and locusts. I guess locusts are wild too, but he's eating locusts and wild honey. There are impoverished people today who still eat locusts. And that's where he's at. It's, it's, a, it's a diet of austerity. It's a diet. He's setting himself up and his ministry up as a place of utter and absolute devotion to God. Not for life, but for now. As he prepares the way to Messiah. As he points people there. And where's he pointing them? Look at your heart. Are you repentant? It's not enough to be circumcised and identified with the people of God. Not here, not now, not where things are headed. Where's your heart? That was the question of his baptism. And we see the prophecy that's attached to it in verses 7 and 8. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here he's paving the way. He's pointing to Jesus and what is to come. And we must not underestimate the importance of verses 7 and 8. John links his baptism with Messiah's baptism. John baptized people who responded to his message of repentance with water. The followers of Jesus would also be baptized with water, verse 8. That's coming. Jesus, too, will baptize in this way. But in addition, Jesus will baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit, with spiritual regeneration, the outpouring of the Spirit of God that cleanses the unbeliever from sin and brings new life. More on Holy Spirit baptism in a few moments. But first, we see in verses 9 through 11, secondly, that Jesus identifies with John's baptism of repentance. In those days, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Mark does not tell us this, but as Matthew clarifies, Jesus had no need to repent himself. In fact, John protested to Jesus and said, this should be the other way around. I should be being baptized by you, not you by me. He's indicating there, he understands there's no need for repentance on the part of Jesus. The Trinitarian implications of verses 10 through 11 are profound. We're going to leave them to the side here for today. Suffice it to say that Jesus does not become the Son of God at his baptism. He is introduced as the Son of God in verse 1. 
And certainly this accords with the rest of Scripture. He doesn't become the Son of God. He's not born the Son of God. He's not made the Son of God. He is seated in a unique way as the Son of God enthroned when he defeats death and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But he does not become the Son of God. He is eternally that. But beyond New Testament support for that idea, let's narrow in on the linkage to John's baptism. Notice verse 9, Jesus identifies himself in this way, with this message of repentance. This purposeful linkage is made more explicit in the book of Acts in the early sermons of the apostles. So we're moving from Old Covenant to the baptism of John, which is saying circumcision is insufficient. I'm talking about a repentant heart unto forgiveness. And my baptism is linking now with Jesus, who will also baptize with water and the Holy Spirit. If this linkage continues, if we're really drawing the lines appropriately, then we would expect the followers of Jesus, that early church, to reflect this very same orientation, that, the, that John's baptism demanded repentance and Jesus' baptism demanded Holy Spirit baptism. That's precisely what we find in a passage uh, such as Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39. We must join then, this is by way of application, we must join our practice of baptism to this new covenant pattern. And notice this is what the apostles do in Acts 2, Peter's sermon. When, he had heard, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, having heard this message and witnessing evidence of the baptism of the Spirit there in Acts 2, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Notice there the linkage again with repentance the forgiveness of sin, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is not something different than what John was saying. This is right in the track of it. Does Peter draw linkage with the old covenant rite of circumcision? I'd say no. Rather, he speaks in the same terms as John the Baptist. As a a quick aside here, verse 39 is one of the proof texts for infant baptism. That is, those who support infant baptism would say, look at verse 39, for the promise is for you, go be baptized, and for your children, so they should be baptized, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Two simple points here. The first here is the, there is a grand de-emphasis on the phrase, for all who are far off. If the phrase, and for your children, means we should baptize infants, then the phrase, and for all who are far off, teaches that we should baptize everyone, whether they're saved or not. If we're going to apply it 
faithfully, that's what it would mean. And we know it cannot mean that. Secondly, the promise of the Holy Spirit is limited to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in repentant faith. So we cannot play with that phrase, and for your children, and separate it from those who call on the name of the Lord. When you call on the name of the Lord in the name of Christ, you're to be baptized. When your children call on the name of the Lord in repentant faith, they are to be baptized. When anyone anywhere throughout this world over which Christ reigns supreme calls on the name of the Lord in repentant faith, they're to be baptized. A little later in the story of the early church, the Apostle Peter reports to some Jewish believers about what God did through him among a group gathered at the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius at Caesarea Maritima. So this is the report now. The event has taken place. We'll go back to it in a moment. But the event has taken place and Peter is, is reporting, says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Spirit baptism in response to the gospel of Christ, his death, his resurrection. Just as the Spirit fell on us at the beginning. Now what does that jog in Peter's mind? And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? We note again the strong linkage that Peter draws between baptism in Jesus' name and in John's name. Or or rather, John's baptism. But going back earlier to the actual scene in Caesarea, we witness the connection between Christian baptism and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Very directly, after they respond and are baptized in the Spirit in response to that message, Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Why are they baptized in the name of Jesus? Because they have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. The connection is direct and consistent with John's baptism. So, could a man show up at the Jordan River and say to John, I want baptism, but is not repentant? I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew, I've, I've been circumcised, I'm part of the people of God, I'm part of the covenant. I don't see any need to repent, to trust in God for forgiveness. I'm good the way that I am. What would John say? You're not ready. No, you cannot be baptized with my baptism because it's a baptism of repentance. I would add then and ask here, Do you believe, on the basis of what we find here in Acts 10 and 11, that if the Spirit of God had not baptized these Gentile believers, do you believe that Peter would have baptized them? There's no way. 
That's the whole point of it is we cannot withhold water baptism from them because they have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. They've responded in repentant faith to the message of Jesus crucified and risen. It's that that leads him to even consider baptism in the name of Jesus. So John demanded that candidates come with repentant faith first, then seek baptism. And so the followers of Christ saw evidence of spirit baptism before they baptized in water. And we asked the question, I think directly but honestly, and I trust lovingly, can an infant express repentant faith in Christ? A message written on the heart of all who participate in the new covenant. It's just not possible. Baptism in the New Testament is a testimony, and here we bring it to today, to our stewardship and to the baptism before us. Baptism in the New Testament is a testimony to an individual's spiritual identification with the new covenant people of God through repentant faith, through trust in Christ as Savior, through His death and resurrection, by the Spirit of God's baptism. not in connection to one's physical birth. There's no connection there with John's baptism. There's no connection there with Jesus' baptism. The gift of the Holy Spirit qualifies one for baptism just as repentance qualified one for baptism under John's preparatory work. Baptism does not qualify one for the gift of the Spirit. That makes sense? The Holy Spirit baptism qualifies one for baptism, but water baptism does not qualify one for the gift of the Holy Spirit some future day. So here, with love for the gospel-believing infant baptizers in our world and friends very close to us in many instances, Infant Baptists baptize people who have not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They do so because they feel compelled to link New Covenant baptism with Old Covenant circumcision. But as we've learned in our studies through the book of Hebrews, the law has been set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness, Hebrews 7 and verse 18. Understood properly, but it uses that word. Hebrews 8.13 we read, In speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. So we should not link Christian baptism to circumcision of infant boys under the old covenant, but rather link it to John's baptism of repentant faith in anticipation of the new age of the Holy Spirit. This is, in fact, I think, a key doctrine. And while we will struggle till we meet Christ with disagreements between people that we very much agree on with the, concerning the gospel, We're going to disagree on this until we reach eternity. But it is a key doctrine. It's not a throwaway doctrine. Eden Baptist Church must insist on a believer's repentant faith in Christ, on evidence of the Holy Spirit baptism before we admit one to baptism. 
And that certainly by way of application brings to our consideration as stewards of this ordinance the baptism of children. I don't want to go into this in any great detail, but we are all walking something of a balance. We want very much never to discourage children from pursuing baptism. When they have a desire to follow Christ, to do what He wants them to do, to follow in baptism, we don't want to discourage that in any way. But we also must permit sufficient time for children to mature to the place where the church can bear witness to evidences of repentant faith, regeneration, and Holy Spirit baptism. That we can say with some measure of confidence, this child is evidencing that kind of faith. Now this generally demands some opportunity for God's people to see that young person see that that young person has genuinely chosen to follow Christ against opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. If that opposition has not been faced, we have really little idea if that faith is really genuine. So we need to find that. There's not an age, there's not a particular uh, age and time where that's possible, but it's something that we should consider. Because Baptists can be just about as guilty of putting water baptism before spirit baptism as infant baptizers. We want to be cautious that we not do that. But with diligent watch care, we can rejoice that by insisting on repentant faith in Christ, crucified and risen, insisting on this spirit baptism and regeneration, we can indeed avoid three very serious problems in infant baptizing churches. I don't share them whatsoever to gloat, but to say and for us to recognize this is a serious problem in infant baptizing churches. Number one, unlike John's baptism, the vast majority of baptized believers in infant baptizing churches have utterly no recollection of standing for Christ and identifying with His death and resurrection in the waters of baptism. They have no such experience as what we see in John's baptism, as what we see in Acts 2 and 10 and 11 and on. There's no recollection of that because they've been baptized as infants, unconscious of what is happening to them. Under the old covenant, the whole system was calibrated to the parent, rightly so, in God's plan. The circumcised boys were quite happy they could never remember the day of their circumcision. But in the new covenant... The link to John's baptism, there is a conscious decision to step forward and identify with Christ. To go down to that river valley, to hear the message of John, to step forward as one already circumcised who is repentant, and to recognize I'm not good with my old covenant circumcision. There's something more. Second problem. Infant baptizing churches add unregenerate souls to the church's membership by means of infant baptism. The Heidelberg Catechism exhorts Reformed churches that infants be, I quote, admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. Hear the words. This is the Catechism's words. As was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision. 
So there is a purposeful linkage of Christian baptism with circumcision under the Old Covenant. The problem is that hard linkage to the Old Covenant does not match what John was doing with his linkage to Jesus' baptism. Romans 8 and verse 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. We pray by the grace of God that our children will one day belong to Him. That in the mind of God, He knows that they are His chosen children and they will come to saving faith in Christ. But if they don't have the Spirit of Christ, let us not say that they do. Infant baptizing churches embrace such souls. And let's just take the hypothetical young boy, we'll say, who comes to that, is that place, he is baptized as an infant, and God knows this child will never trust Christ the Savior. This child will never receive the baptism of the Spirit. Yet the church recognizes that child as part of the body of Christ. We can't do that. And we shouldn't identify with that program. Thirdly, in infant baptizing churches, either unregenerate souls are invited to the Lord's table by means of infant communion, or members of the church are restricted for years from the table until they are admitted upon confirmation. You can't solve that problem. So some churches seek to solve it by baptizing their infants and then right away putting a piece of bread or touch of the wine on their tongue because they are members of the covenant people and so should be admitted to the table. Others wait until confirmation, perhaps age 13 or so, and just decide at that point the kids should have this figured out and we will then, upon confirmation, invite them to the table. But no matter how you cut it, where infants are being baptized in churches, there are individuals who are identified with the body of Jesus Christ, the church, who are unregenerate, will remain unregenerate, and as they grow and mature and become adults, that becomes a very serious problem in those churches. We cannot know who has been genuinely spirit-baptized, but we can do the best we can and get pretty close. By God's grace, the effort solves many, many problems. And obviously, church discipline is one of the mechanisms that we can fall back on when it becomes clear that someone is not a born-again follower of Christ. But just for a few more moments, let me issue, first of all, a call to those who have trusted Christ as Savior. And in your own heart and belief, you say, I believe I've trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but you've not been baptized. I would just ask you here, knowing that water baptism in the name of Christ is the right that he gives to his church to identify with what he's done, I would just ask you the question, what reason causes you to hold out on baptism? What reason are you, and there is, there is one. Find out what it is. Identify it. Why would you not follow Christ in baptism?
And I would encourage you to address that reason and to turn to Christ and to obey Him in this matter. Secondly, a call to those who were baptized before their conversion. Maybe you were infant baptized as the word is used. Or perhaps you've come to believe that I really know I came to saving faith in Christ after I was baptized, even if by immersion. I I just think today is a good time for you to face that issue and to ask, have I been baptized in a biblical sense as a demonstration of repentant faith and spirit baptism in the name of Jesus? And for those who say, I am neither baptized nor could I say that I've received spirit baptism. Maybe you say, I don't even know what that is. I would just encourage you right now to thank God that you're in this place. Thank Him that you're here, hearing that there is a God who has sent His eternal Son to take on flesh, to die as the sacrifice for sin, that He might purify His people from their sins. And as you observe the baptism today, perhaps you could just even think of it in terms. Here is a visible picture of what God will do with my sin. To identify with His death and to wash me clean of my sin. That's not possible by self-reformation. That's not possible by you keeping the rules or coming to church. And it has nothing to do with your family identity. It has everything to do with seeing yourself as a sinner before a holy God and turning in repentant faith to Christ. We would love to see you baptized as a demonstration that God has done that new covenant work in your heart. In time, keep seeking. Seek His face today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the cleansing that comes through our High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for the better covenant. And we're grateful, Lord, for this saving grace that we have in His name. And I pray now that as we strive to actively here in this moment in a unique way steward the rite of baptism as a church, I pray, Father, that we will rejoice together in the words that Titus shares and in the baptism of this young man that you have drawn to yourself and by every indication have given repentant faith and spirit baptism. I pray that many others would follow in the days ahead. We plead, Father, that you'll do a work in and through us as a congregation in his heart as he comes today and in the hearts of those that are considering and thinking about baptism. Lord, may you move them past a consideration to obedience in your time and way, we pray through Christ. Amen.